For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is The Potter's Freedom. The Potter's Freedom. This is part one, Romans chapter nine. Our text nine through 24, we're going to focus this morning on verses 19 through 21. If you're just now joining us, we are in the midst of a section of text now in scripture wherein Paul the Apostle is demonstrating and proving the faithfulness of God to his word. In particular, he is proving that God has been faithful to his covenant promises made to Abraham. God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to the covenant. God is faithful to Abraham and to his seed. These are promises that the Jews feel entitled to because of their perceived righteousness under the law. They're promises that the Jews feel entitled to precisely because they are circumcised Jews. The physical seed of Abraham according to the flesh with the blood of the patriarch Abraham coursing through their veins. Despite their self-righteous attempt to be justified through works of the law, despite their claim to Abraham as their physical or ethnic father, Paul has alluded to the fact in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, that Israel is cut off from Christ and accursed. Ignorant of God's own righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, Israel has failed to attain to righteousness through works of the law. They have stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it were. They have stumbled at the rock of offense, and they were, chapter 11, verse 7, they were blinded. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And although Paul will explain later that there's going to be a remnant of Israel that is saved according to the election of grace, his own grief and sorrow over the nation provokes him to say that grief and sorrow expressed in the words of chapter 9, verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites. Now, that fact, the fact that Israel has been cut off and is accursed from Christ provokes an objector from Paul's Jewish interlocutor. If Israel has been cut off from God and accursed, then God has been unfaithful to his word. If Israel has been cut off and accursed, then God has forsaken his promises to Abraham and his promises to his seed. Now that is an objection that Paul flatly rejects. Verse 6 and he rejects it in the strongest possible terms. May it never be. And then Paul takes up that, object, that objection and sets himself to answer it in three ways. First, Paul explains that the promise that God made to Abraham and to his seed, that promise was never, that promise never meant the salvation of every single individual Israelite. The promise that, that God made to Abraham never meant the salvation of every single individual Jew. For, Paul says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Physical descent from Abraham, circumcision, doesn't guarantee salvation. 
So it is not that the word of God has failed. Those who are born to Abraham merely according to the flesh, these are not the children of God. Of God. And Paul explains. Second, God also makes a distinction. He makes a distinction between those Jews born merely according to the flesh and those whom God himself has chosen according to the election of grace. He makes a distinction and he makes a distinction himself so that it is God's purpose according to election that stands and it is not of him who works or wills or runs. Only those elected by God are counted as the seed of Abraham, and they are counted as the seed of Abraham through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only those elected by God are saved and inherit the promise. God makes a distinction. Third, that gracious and merciful election is entirely unconditional and free. God does not make that election. God does not make that determination. He doesn't make that distinction on the basis of any natural or inherent distinction between one person and another person, including any so-called foreseen faith. God God does not make his determination on anything to do with you or me. God freely determines. God freely elects and he elects for the glory of his own name. That glory made manifest in God's sovereign freedom in showing mercy. The glory of his name demonstrated in God's own character and in God's own willingness, astonishing willingness to demonstrate or to show mercy. And in that In acting for the glory of his own name, God always acts in righteousness. There is no unrighteousness with God. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion, and that for the glory of God's own name. And that free determination, that sovereign election includes, as we'll see, both election and reprobation. Paul concluding in verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. Pretty clear, amen? Pretty clear. It is therefore in this way, chapter 11, verse 26, that all Israel, all true Israel, all those sons of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ, it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. God's free and sovereign election is the foundation of God's covenant faithfulness to the promise that he made to Abraham and to his seed. His free and sovereign election, the granite slab upon which God constructs, if you will, in time, his own unwavering, uncompromising, unflinching faithfulness to every promise that he's made, including those promises to you and I. Amen. The promised seed are all those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his promises. Well, okay, Paul. (laughs) Now, wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. If, as you say, a person's hard and impenitent condition is ultimately God's will. And if, as you say, it is not ultimately the just deserts of his own willing or his own running or his own working, if 
God's free sovereignty extends to having mercy on some and hardening others without any respect to who they are or what they've done, then it would be unrighteous for God to condemn that person. That's what Paul's objector would say. If man's impenitence, if his hardness is ultimately owing to God, if it's according to the will of God, verse 19, then why does he still find fault? How could he possibly still find fault? For who has ever resisted his will? No one can stand opposed to the will of God, this objector might say. Even if a person rebels like Pharaoh did, they're still ultimately fulfilling God's plan. So if we're only doing what God himself has ultimately willed for us to do, then how can he blame us for doing it? Do you see? So if a person doesn't have the freedom to determine for himself, if the person doesn't have the freedom to act for himself, and if God is the one who has hardened his heart, then God would be unjust to find any fault with us. Unjust to find any fault with any of us, including Pharaoh, and we can't be justly condemned for our choices. Do you see the line of reasoning? Do you see the objection? Like so many in Paul's day, in our own day, Paul's objector stumbles at this point. They'll find nothing. They'll find nothing in scripture that militates against God's sovereign freedom in election. There is nothing in scripture that militates against or even mitigates God's entire sovereign freedom. Nothing. And yet it is their own conception of God that is offended by the notion. And a voice rises, a voice rises not from within scripture, but rather it's a voice that rises from within their own heart and mind. God cannot be like that. I am free, they would proclaim. <laughs> what Paul is obviously preaching, what the Bible is obviously asserting, it must be wrong. Right? You could go to most corners of this town, simply read a couple of statements from Romans chapter 9, not commentate on any of it, and somebody's going to shout out, that's not right, when all you're doing is reading scripture, do you see? God would be unjust, God would be unrighteous if he conducted himself in such a way. Now, Paul has already proven himself ready to receive a humble question. Already proven himself willing to answer an honest question. <laughs> but what he is not prepared to allow is the arrogant, prideful presumption of this particular question. Do you hear the pride? Do you hear the presumption in it? Humility or sincerity might have asked the question in this way. Paul it would appear that in what you've asserted that the actions of sinful men don't play a role in God's determination to harden someone. How can this be? Can you explain it to me? That would be a good, humble way to ask that question. However, the objectionable question that Paul appears to be answering now doesn't come in the humble form of how can these things be. It comes in the prideful and presumptuous form of this cannot be. Do you see the difference? Many respond to the teaching of this text today with precisely the same sentiment. This cannot be because it offends my moral judgment. It offends my moral sensibility. It offends the way that I think things should be. These things cannot be. With my moral judgment, I am perfectly capable of deciding what is just and what is unjust. And what you're saying is unjust. What you're saying, Paul, is offensive. 
God cannot act in that way. It's presumptuous arrogance. Do you see? As though fallen man could sit in judgment of almighty God. Now, Paul in our text essentially issues a stern rebuke. Verse 20, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Do you hear the rebuke in it? (laughs) Paul essentially puts us in our place, doesn't he? Who are you, you mere creature? Who are you, you scrap of clay? (laughs) Who are you, your mind darkened by sin? God formed you out of the dirt. (laughs) Who are you to reply against God? What right do you have to charge God with unrighteousness? His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. And with that rhetorical question in verse 20, Paul emphatically denies the right of mere men to sit in judgment of God and his ways. He denies the right of the creature to sit in judgment of his creator. Now, people today who revolt at what Paul is actually and clearly asserting in our text revolt for essentially the same reason. They revolt for essentially the same reasons that are driving Paul's Jewish objector at this point. God's determination must have something to do with me. I must have a choice in the matter. In that sense, God isn't entirely free. This in some way depends upon me. God would be unjust if he operated with such sovereign freedom. That would be unfair, right? And if he he asserted his free will in that way, then he would be violating my free will in that way. That would void man's responsibility for his sin. And how could he then justly condemn anyone for their sin? If we do not have free will, then we are not responsible for our actions and God cannot condemn us for our sin. Now think with me for a moment. Think, what is it that they're forgetting? What is it that Paul's Jewish objector is forgetting? What point are they missing? They're forgetting original sin And they're forgetting the devastating effects of the fall. They're forgetting the fall. Our default position is hell. Our default position is the wrath of God being poured out in judgment upon us. In sin, your mother conceived you. (laughs) From your womb, as the psalmist says, you've come out, as it were, speaking lies. We are sinners. Our will is already in bondage to sin. We can't possibly have any claim to mercy. So if God determines to decree mercy for some and to withhold mercy from others, judicially hardening them instead, he has done no injustice. Do you see? He's done no injustice. He's not acted unrighteously. If God determines to show mercy to some, And to withhold it from others, God has not acted unrighteously in doing that. We deserve justice because of our sin. No one deserves mercy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be mercy. (laughs) Sinners simply receive what their sin has merited. Now, the Arminian then complains. 
right? The Armenian, not those that live east of Turkey, those that idolize free will. The Arminian complains. I like doing that because I want to remind us that they idolize free will. <laughs> the Arminian complains God's will cannot violate my will or God would be unjust. God would be unrighteous. The Bible teaches God doesn't violate your will in showing mercy. God frees it. You see the difference? God doesn't violate your will in showing mercy. God frees it. And in that free and sovereign bestowal of mercy, he acts in righteousness for the sake of his name. The Bible also teaches God doesn't violate the sinner's will in hardening his heart. God doesn't violate his will in hardening his heart. He judges it. He righteously judges it. And in accord with God's free and sovereign decree of reprobation, he then acts in righteousness for the sake of his own name. And in that, God shows no injustice. God is righteous. He leaves the sinner in a state outside of salvation, a state that is preparing them for destruction. The sinner is never in a neutral state. We're not in some neutral state as it were hanging between heaven and hell. You were born as a child of your father, the devil. You were born as a seed of the serpent. We need to be saved. We need a savior. Do you see? That sinner is never in a neutral state. That sinner is condemned already. John chapter three, verse 18 and condemned because he has not believed in the only begotten son of God. That belief is something that he is entirely incapable of unless it is granted to him by his father. John chapter six, verse 65. So what Paul is ultimately pointing at then is the free and sovereign will of almighty God, a will that is in no way restrained or constrained by the choices or actions of sinful men and women. The Bible speaks of God's will in two ways. First, there is God's preceptive will. God's preceptive will primarily communicated through his commands. He communicates his preceptive will through precepts that we are to obey. Do you see? Thou shall, thou shalt not. Paul speaks of God's preceptive will, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. God's preceptive will in this text, for example, is what God has commanded you to do. Stay away from sexual immorality. Stay away. Learn how to possess your own vessel. That's God's preceptive will. Stay away from sexual immorality. For your own good, for the glory of his name, he has given us his preceptive will in the form of this command, do this, don't do that. Do you see? God's preceptive will. Second, the Bible speaks of God's decretive will his determinative will. As his preceptive will is made manifest in his precepts, his decretive will is made manifest in his eternal decrees. God's decretive will, for example, is communicated in such texts as Ephesians chapter one. Listen, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's his decree of election stated clearly in election in Ephesians chapter one. I don't agree with that. You're arguing with the Bible, right? God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In other words, before you were a figment on anybody else's imagination, before you were born, before you had done anything good or evil, not according to foreseen faith, but according to God's purpose of election, that his purpose according to election might stand. Do you see the connection with Romans chapter nine? 
God chose you, if you're in Christ, he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that we, for the purpose that we should be holy and without blame before him, one day, fully glorified, will be holy and without blame before him. We're positionally there now. When Jesus Christ returns, gathers his people to himself, we'll be glorified. We'll see him as he is, and we will in eternity be in the presence of our God. (laughs) Amazing thought. All of that in love, verse 5, God having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of your will. According to the good pleasure of that decision you made to pray a prayer and walk it. No, according to the good pleasure of his own will. That's his decretive will. We have his preceptive will revealed to us on the pages of scripture. His decreed will, some of that we know from scripture, a lot of that we don't know because that which is revealed to us is for us and our children. That which is hidden is God's purview. (laughs) That's for God to know. He predestined us according to the good pleasure of his own decreed or decretive will, his determined will. Another way of referring to his eternal purpose expressed in decree. Having decreed then, God works all things after the counsel of his own decreed will. That's Ephesians 1 again. And he has mercy on whomever he wills to have mercy and whom he wills he hardens. All in accord with his decretive will. Though God's preceptive will is violated continuously, thoughts and intents of man's heart only evil continually. All of that demonstrating the bondage of man's will to his sin, the slavery of man to his sin. Although God's preceptive will is violated all the time, God's decretive will is never thwarted, never undermined, never frustrated, never changes. God's decretive will will be brought to pass. So in answer to our objector's rhetorical question from Romans chapter nine, verse 19, no one and nothing has resisted his will. No one and no thing. And in that, God is vindicated as righteous. Why? Because all that God has decreed is for the glory of his own name. When God acts, he acts for the greatest imaginable good. He acts acts with the greatest Possible righteousness. He acts for the glory of his own name. When he acts for the glory of his own name, God is vindicated. God is faithful to his word and God acts in righteousness. Listen to this from Lorraine Baitner. I think it's good that we quote this at length. Listen, the Bible speaks to the existence of an eternal divine decree, which antecedent antecedent to any difference or desert in men themselves, that decree coming before anything man has done, separates the human race into two portions and ordains, decrees one to everlasting life and ordains the other to everlasting death. So far as this decree relates to men, it designates the counsel of God concerning those who had a supremely favorable chance in Adam to earn salvation, but who lost that chance, lost that chance through the fall. As a result of the fall, they are guilty and corrupted. Their motives are wrong and they cannot work out their own salvation. 
They have forfeited all claim upon God's mercy and might justly have been left to suffer the penalty of their disobedience as all of the fallen angels were left. But instead, the elect members of this race are rescued from this state of guilt and sin and are brought into a state of blessedness and holiness. The non-elect are simply left in their previous state of ruin and are condemned for their sins. It is a state which hardened them, hardens them for destruction. They suffer no unmerited punishment for God is dealing with them, not merely as men, but as sinners. Really helpful. The question raised by Paul's objector in Romans chapter nine, verse 19 That question reflects a self-righteous and presumptuous accusation. Here it is. Paul, if it is as you say, and God's free, sovereign, and eternal decree determines all things that come to pass, including the eternal destinies of men, so that no one can resist his decree, then God would be unrighteous if he conducted himself in such ways. He would be violating the free will of man if he conducted himself in such ways. And he would be unrighteous in condemning us for our sin. You see the objection. It's important that we understand what that is. Paul simply answers with a stern rebuke in verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? For man to presume to tell God how he ought to act for man to presume to tell God how he can and cannot act is as absurd as a statue telling the sculptor how he ought to chisel. It is as stupid as a lump of clay telling the sculptor where and how he should mold the clay. One commentator said, the presumption that a man's sense of values is ultimate and can prevail against God's sense of values is as ludicrous to Paul as a ranting figurine. (laughs) Verse 20, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? (laughs) With this simple picture, Paul now portrays how outrageous it is for men to question God, how outrageous it is for men to sit in judgment of God and his ways. Verse 21, does not the potter have power over the clay, right over the clay, authority over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another vessel for dishonor. In other words, to make one vessel for holy use, consecrated to God, for holy use, devoted to God, and to make another vessel from the same lump for common use, set aside for perdition to make that one a vessel of dishonor because of the dishonorable ways in which he uses his vessel. (laughs) Does not the potter have the right to do this? That language, that imagery doesn't originate with Paul. Turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah 45. While you're turning to Isaiah, listen to this from Isaiah 29. This language is in multiple places in the the Old Testament. Isaiah 29, verse 16, shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Are they equals? Are they equals? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me. (laughs) The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's synonymous with the atheist saying in his heart, there is no God. (laughs) He didn't make me. 
Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it? He has no understanding. He's got no skill. The potter has no right over me. I'm autonomous and free. God doesn't know what he's doing. God doesn't know what he's doing. Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, uh, in the context of our passage here, God has announced that he's going to deliver his people. And God is going to deliver his people in spectacular fashion, in a way that exalts his sovereign freedom. God is going to call Cyrus the Mede, Cyrus the pagan king, to deliver his people. And he's going to call Cyrus the Mede by name 210 years before Cyrus was even born. He names him by name in this text 210 years before Cyrus was ever born. It was said in extra biblical sources that Cyrus, after Cyrus was born and after Cyrus was ascending the leadership in Medo-Persia, that Cyrus actually read of this prophecy in the scroll of Isaiah and that he wondered at the sovereignty and power of almighty God to have brought him forth. Like the Cyrus knew about it before he even took power. It's an amazing thought, but interesting. And that's a little extra free of charge. He explains, God explains how he's going to use this pagan now to deliver his own people. God explains how he's going to use a pagan to deliver his own people. Verse four, verse four, for my, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and for Israel, my elect, I've even called you by your name. Remember, this is well in advance of Cyrus's birth. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God besides me. I am the one who decrees all things whatsoever that come to pass. I'm the one who scripts the end from before the beginning. I am the one who brings all these things about. Do you hear God in the text? There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. Verse 6. And I'm going to gird you so that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace. I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. God says, I am sovereign. Do you see? I am power. (laughs) Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And in doing all that he pleases, his sovereign will is not in any way constrained or restrained by the decisions and choices of sinful men. Do you see? God's will is not in bondage to us. That is an absurd thought. Now, in knowing that God is about to do this through a pagan king, there are going to be some in Israel who would take exception to God's means of deliverance here. It won't be another Moses that delivers them. It's not going to be another prophet like Moses. It would be by the hands of a pagan that his people would be rescued by the means of a pagan king rather than, you could say, through the hands of an idolatrous people It would be through the hands of a pagan that God would establish his rule in righteousness. He plans to restore righteousness through the hands of a pagan. Verse eight, rain down you heavens from above. Let the skies pour down righteousness. Let earth open, let them bring forth salvation. Let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Well, there'd be many in Israel who would rise up in objection to God's plans. 
They would actually stand opposed to God's. It's, it reminds me of Jonah sitting on the, on the hill, complaining in himself that God's about to grant repentance to Nineveh, right? They would complain about God's plans and God's means, the wondrous works that God does. So God addresses them in verse nine. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Woe to the one who sits in judgment of his counsel. Woe to the one who despises his decree. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Let one scrap of clay strive with another scrap of clay. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? (laughs) Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? He has no skill. Woe to him, verse 10, who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask of me things to come concerning my sons, concerning the work of my hands. Command me with your prayers and with your petitions. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands stretched out the heavens and all their host. I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, Cyrus. I've raised him up in righteousness. I've not acted unrighteously. I've not acted unjustly. I've raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. He shall let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he will do precisely what I have determined that he will do. And Israel should be grateful that he does it. Chapter 9, verse 21, what is the lesson that we should take from Isaiah 45? Does not the potter have power or authority over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Does not the potter have sovereign freedom to do as he pleases with those that he has created, with those that are his own creation? Does he not have right over his own creation? The worst form of this futile striving with the ways and means of God by sinful men is seen in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The worst example of that standing in opposition to the will and the ways of God in the the salvation of sinners, in the salvation of ungodly, undeserving people like you and me, the worst form of that opposition is the rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his only begotten son to deliver his people, to save. And the Jews said, we know better. We know better. John 1.10, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Rather than turning to Jesus Christ in faith, the Jews and the Romans crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him to an open shame and thumbed their noses noses at the will of God in his redemptive purposes and plans. They said, we know better. It's not that they didn't know. Jesus Christ is the living embodiment of the word. He is the logos, the word of God, performing miracles in their sight. What more revelation do you need than to have the son of glory walking in your midst, Right? This is the very problem that Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter nine. Israel is striving, continuing to strive against their maker. But now that leads to the next and obvious question. 
What about you? <laughs> what about all those today that reject the Lord Jesus Christ? that reject the revelation of God. If you've not turned from your sin to entirely abandon your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're standing opposed to the will and ways of God and his redemptive plans and purposes to save. You're striving against your maker. You're no better. <laughs> With all the revelation that we have this side of the cross, good case could be made that we are far worse rejecting the revelation that we have the fullness of God's inscripturated revelation given to us. You've got it in your lap. Not only do you have it in your lap, you've got access to like 150 translations of the click of a button on that thing. You've got that device you've got on your hands, right? And yet you continue to walk. If you're in your sin, you continue to walk antagonistically against all of that gracious revelation from God. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. What are you doing? Living for yourself, striving against your maker. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and live. Will you stand in opposition to the work of God in the gospel? Will you continue striving against your maker? You scrap of clay. What are you doing? Do you see? Do you presume to think, you're going to lay hold of heaven by your own devices. It's just somehow going to work out in the end. God has spoken. And he's spoken in the person and work of his own son. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Misery, ruin, destruction, and hell come upon those who continue to stand opposed to God. Your only hope, your only hope is that God, for the glory of his own name, would show you mercy in and through the person and work of his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And what, you know what? God delights, delights to show mercy through the work of his son. Verse 21, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? The lump of clay that Paul is referring to in verse 21 is the mass of fallen, sinful, and rebellious humanity. The lump of clay is all of humanity. The mass of fallen humanity is pictured by Paul in the hands of God. And God is the master potter who is fashioning men according to his own free and sovereign will. Do you get the picture? With, with some of that clay, with a portion of that lump, God is fashioning vessels for honor, for holy use, for consecrated use. With the rest of that lump, he is fashioning vessels for dishonor, vessels of dishonor, vessels that still have a use. Think about that with me now. Vessels that still have a use, vessels that still serve a decreed purpose. They are serving the glory of his justice, but nevertheless, Vessels that serve a purpose that terminates upon their dishonor. The potter is the one who molds them. The potter determines. In the relationship between the potter and the vessel of clay, in other words, in the relationship between God and men, the sole authority for determining the nature of the vessel belongs to the potter alone. God alone has the right. God alone has the prerogative to take the clay in his hands and to fashion the clay as he 
pleases. And because it is his prerogative alone, no scrap of clay has any right to oppose the sovereign determination of God. Therefore, the objector, Romans chapter 9, verse 19, has no basis on which he may dispute God's righteousness in hardening whom he wills. You see, notice, notice with me, God does not create sin in the clay. God does not author sin in the clay. God is not the author of sin. God does not work in them, molding and shaping rebellion. God does not work in them, their own fallenness. They are rebels. They are fallen. The clay wasn't in a neutral state before God began to fashion it. But rather, by shaping, by forming sinful clay for his own purposes, he makes them, makes of them vessels. Vessels set aside for honorable use, or he justly determines not to overcome their inherent fallenness, and he makes of them instead vessels that are set aside for dishonorable use, uses that righteously terminate upon their dishonor. Uses that righteously terminate upon their judgment. The question of verse 20 cannot possibly be, think with me now, the question of verse 20 cannot possibly be, why have you made me a sinner? God didn't make you a sinner. God did not make you a sinner. At best, it may only be, why have you left me in my sin? God is not not unjust or unrighteous to do so. We deserve to face the justice of God because of our sin. The only reply that Paul gives in our text is that God may rightly do as he pleases. And he may rightly do as he pleases with a sinful and rebellious people that deserve the wrath of God, that deserve his justice. Therefore, again, we come back to that statement. God gives mercy to whom he wills and whom he wills, God hardens. So having corrected having instructed his insolent objector with a dose of divine reality, Paul then makes his point abundantly clear with a simple purpose statement. And that simple purpose statement explaining just one reason for why God acts in this way. Verse 22. What if God, wanting, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, with much patience, the vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction so that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. More on that next week. If the Lord allows in closing, How foolish, how absurd is it for anyone to presume in his sin to stand opposed to the living God? It is the sure and certain path to perdition. It is a sure and certain evidence that you are on that path. You are responsible to turn from your sin. God will not acquit the wicked in the day of judgment. You are responsible to repent and to believe in the gospel, turning to Jesus Christ in faith. Woe 
to him who strives with his maker. Because God is sovereign, you can't look to the free offer of the gospel and somehow blame God for your rebellion against him. You can't say to yourself, why has God made me a sinner? You're the sinner. God is the creator. God is holy, righteous, and just. Submit yourself to what he has revealed and turn to to Christ in faith. As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? You can't have that fatalistic view or perspective of God's own sovereignty. God has commanded you to turn. God has overlooked lengthy times of ignorance, (laughs) but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's God's preceptive will. Turn from your sin to Jesus Christ in faith. Brother and sister Paul describes those vessels of honor that God has made. He describes them to Timothy. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 20. Listen, Paul says to Timothy in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. And so what do you think Paul tells Timothy? Does Paul tell Timothy, listen, Timothy, just sit back, sit back and be perplexed over whether or not God has made you a vessel of honor or a vessel for dishonor. Just sit back. It has nothing to do with you. Just sit back. Just relax. Why are you so worried? God's going to do whatever God, have you seen that, that response of Kings, for example, in the old Testament, let the Lord do as he wills. Eli, let the Lord do do as he wills. He's, he's God. No, Eli, turn from your sin, (laughs) repent. Maybe God will show you mercy, right? Let God do what God is going to do. It's a fatalistic. It's a terrible attitude. Don't look at salvation in the gospel. Don't look at God that way. Does he tell Timothy, Timothy, just sit back. Don't worry. Let go and let God. Is that what he tells Timothy? No. Because, because in that great house, there are those vessels who are made for honor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from being a vessel of dishonor, he will be, he will prove himself to be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. What is Paul telling Timothy to do? Pursue God, repent Turn from your sin. Trust Christ. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no sanction in scripture for some fatalistic view of salvation. There's no warrant in the Bible for it. Truly, these times of ignorance, God has overlooked, now commands all men everywhere to repent. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Amen. God is willing and mighty to save. All praise, honor, and glory to the one who delights to show mercy. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you. We're grateful that you delight to show mercy. We are those whom you have called to yourself, whom you in great power and great mercy and great grace have caused to be born again. We are those whom you have indwelt by your spirit. We are those whom you have imputed the righteousness of Christ and those whom you have taken 
have imputed their sin to the Lord Jesus Christ and those for whom Christ died. We are those to whom you have willed to show mercy. And we are grateful, Lord, that you delight to show mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Thank you for pitying us in our sin. Thank you, Lord, for pouring out, lavishing upon us your compassion. Forgive us for ever thinking that we had a claim to it, our own sin clouding our judgment, polluting our minds and darkening our hearts. Lord, you are gracious, you are kind, you are good, you are sovereign, you are free, you are God. We worship you for who you are and for what you've done. May our Lord Jesus Christ be glorified in securing this indescribable gift you've given to your people. May he be magnified in the lives that we live and the gospel that we preached. May your spirit, the work of your spirit, be magnified in us who do not walk according to the flesh. May the work of your spirit be magnified in us who, in his power, obey, learn to obey, and are sanctified to obey the righteous requirements of the law. For your glory, God, we pray all these things in our blessed Savior's name. Amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.